Let me invite you to ter- take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use the blue one in front of you in the pew. And you can find this passage on page 1117, 1117. So we are continuing our walk through the book of 1 Peter here. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 21. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. In verse 13 to give us a little bit of context here. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, and I thought about what is this passage about, I spent a lot of time wrestling with it this week, and I finally came to the conclusion that Peter's goal in our passage this morning is quite simple. As Peter writes to these Christians, what he wants to do is he wants to put the fear of God into them and into us. And I mean that quite literally. But I wonder what you hear when I say that. When I say he wants to put the fear of God into them and into us, I wonder what you hear. And I have to wonder because in our day we've lost the language of fearing God. We just don't talk that way anymore. It feels outdated and out of touch. Loving God, trusting God, hoping in God, those are all good. Knowing God, following God, sure. But fearing God, that's like nails on a chalkboard to our modern ears. See, fearing God often seems like something out of step with the Christian life. We think, well, where's the grace and the mercy and the love? I thought perfect love casts out fear. So why would Peter want to put the fear of God in us? Why would he make fearing God a central part of the Christian life? And that's exactly what he's doing here. Do you remember back in verses 3 to 12, we saw this glorious salvation unpacked. This salvation we have in Jesus. And then last time, we turned a corner in verses 13 to 16, and we saw that because of that salvation... Because we've been born again to a living hope, because we have a glorious inheritance, because we have a sure salvation, therefore, 
we should live a certain way. And last time in verses 13 to 16, the two things we saw were that we should set our hope fully on grace and we should be holy like our God. Live in hope and live in holiness. But now in verses 17 to 21, Peter's going to add one more. Live in hope, live in holiness, and now live in fear. Do you see that there in verse 17? See, what, you, what we can't see in the English as well is that verses 17 to 21 are actually one long sentence in the original Greek. And there's one main verb in the whole sentence. Just one. One and only one command. And that's in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's what Peter's after in these verses. Everything else is going to help us unpack that and understand why. But what he's after is he wants us to be God-fearing exiles. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at four reasons the text gives us for why we should be God-fearing. I didn't have a slide this morning for this one, uh, but let me just tell them to you now. So here's, think of these more as hooks for you to hang these ideas on, okay? They may not make sense right away, and that's part of the point. So number one, there are reasons why we should be God-fearing. Number one, paternal judgment. Paternal judgment. Number two, patriotism. Patriotism. Number three, purchased. And number four, planned. Okay, so hopefully I've piqued your curiosity by at least one of those. But before we get into those reasons, I think we need to spend some time thinking together about what does it mean to fear God, right? If that's the, the main thrust of this passage, it seems important that we should get our minds and our hearts around that. And I think it's worth the time because if I had to guess, many of us need to have our views of fearing God revised, possibly expanded, maybe transformed, and I would say for all of us, beautified. And my hope is that together, as, as we look at what it means to conduct ourselves with fear, instead of cringing when we hear that, our hearts will sing. And God will use his word to make us happy by truly putting the fear of God into us. So first, let's start just by thinking together about what it means to fear something in general. Okay, Not just fearing God, but just what does it mean to fear something? Well, when we fear something, we see its potential to cause us harm, right? I mean, that's why we fear. We fear tornadoes because they can destroy our homes. We fear hard conversations because we might get hurt. But underneath their ability to cause us harm, we also see something more fundamental about the things we fear. When we fear something, we recognize its power. It's power. We acknowledge, by fearing it, we acknowledge this thing has the ability to impact us, to change our lives significantly. When we fear something, we acknowledge that this thing is stronger than me. This person, thing, situation, it's stronger than me because if it wasn't, I wouldn't fear it. I have never yet feared something that is weaker than me. But I fear something precisely because I recognize what it can do. Now, many fears are good and helpful, right? Before we just say they're all bad, there's, there's some good and helpful fears. A healthy fear of water keeps kids safe when playing near a lake or a pool. A fear of bears 
I imagine, would protect you if you ever find yourself in Yellowstone. These are good and right fears. The healthy fear helps us avoid harm. And fearing something doesn't mean that we're paralyzed by it. As one commentator pointed out, there is a kind of fear that does not contradict confidence. He uses the example, a confident driver, so he's confident in his abilities and he's been driving for a while, but a confident driver also possesses a healthy fear of an accident that prevents him from doing something foolish. So fear doesn't mean we never drive. Fear is what helps us drive safely and what makes us able to enjoy the experience of driving is precisely because we fear and therefore are kept safe. So what I want you to see up front before we even dig into what does it mean to fear God is that fear is a very powerful thing. Fear shapes how we act every day in ways big and small. Fear is what compels us to do some things like why you wear your seatbelt. And fear compels us to not do other things, like drive on the left side of the road. When we fear something, we are acknowledging that it is powerful and worthy of our respect and that we must live with an awareness of it. That's all fears. And I think that's the beginning of what it means to fear God. I think that's true, but it's just the beginning. Yes, fearing God is acknowledging that he's powerful and he's worthy of our respect and that if we don't live in light of him, there will be grave consequences. That is the beginning of the fear of God. But the fear of God is so much more. Because the fear of God doesn't simply have to do with recognizing the dangers of God's greatness. It also has to do with recognizing the delights of his greatness. I want to give you two definitions about fearing God and then a picture to help us kind of get our minds around what are we talking about when we talk about fearing God. So first, first quote here from John Murray. He says, The fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains, which he, he defines as compels or powerfully produces adoration and love. It is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship, and all of these on the highest level of exercise. It is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. Now, did you notice those words? Awe, reverence, honor, worship, adoration. We said, come let us adore him, right? Where does that come from? comes from fear. And I love how he calls it the reflex in our consciousness when we encounter God's majesty and holiness. What is a reflex? A reflex, you go to the doctor, they, they bang your knee with that thing, and I've never understood it, but I love it. My knee just goes boom. It's like magic to me. I'm like, you are a magician, not a doctor. Every time, it's like, I can't help it, right? That's a reflex. This is something, there's a stimulus, and it causes a response in you. That's beyond your control. And he's saying, when you encounter the majesty and transcendence of God, there's something in your soul that goes, whoa. That's why every time in the Bible people encounter these angels, what do they do? Boom. Because that's not even God himself. That's just his messenger. And they're saying, there is something transcendent going on here. It's like stepping, stepping to the brim of the Grand Canyon, right? It's terrifying. 
but it's thrilling. It's thrilling precisely because it's terrifying. You're up so high, you know the danger, and yet the view is just majestic and glorious. And so that combination of awe and wonder and joy and fear all bundle up. And he says, that's the fear of God. Here's another definition from Sinclair Ferguson. He defines that the fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. And I love that because notice that it's, it's not a terror that pushes us away. It's not like when you see it, you run and hide. It's a fearful wonder that actually draws us in. It's this weird thing. <coughs> Perhaps a, one of the best illustrations of it is a scene that you're, you're well familiar with from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Lucy asks Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion, she says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, that is our God. We are right to fear him because of course he isn't safe. He's big and strong and majestic and holy and mighty and wonderful. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So this morning, as we start to dig into this understanding of fear of God, I just want to ask right out of the gate, is that your view of God? Is your view of God too safe? Have you domesticated him and lost your right fear of him? Is he not the powerful, majestic lion? Has he become more just some tame, easy house cat? If that's you, or even if it's not, what I want to do now is help all of us reorient our thinking about fearing God by walking through just a fraction of what we see in Scripture about fearing Him. What does the Bible teach us about the fear of God? And I, I say a fraction because I think I read somewhere there's over 150 references to the fear, to fearing God. Rest assured, I will not go through all 150 of them, Okay? Just 149. So, just making sure you're listening. All right, so first, we have this verse in Exodus 20, 20. And the first thing we see right out of the gate is that there's fear, and then there's fearing God. And there must be some distinction between them. So right after God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, listen to what happens next. This is Moses speaking to the people. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What a strange juxtaposition of things. He says, don't fear. God just came so that you'll fear. I mean, you have to wonder, are they scratching their heads saying, wait, I thought you said don't fear. But what we see right away is that these are two different things. That fearing God is not the same as just being afraid. It's, we know this, right? If you've ever sang the song Amazing Grace... "'Twas grace that taught my heart to 
and grace my fears relieved. Well, how is that? Grace taught me to fear and it took away my fears? Yes, that's what the gospel does. Okay, and notice that why did God want, to fear, want them to fear him? That you may not sin. In other words, he knows the deadly effects of sin. He says, I'm going to keep you safe. There's a fear of me that will keep you safe. Next, we see that God is the one who puts the fear of him into us. He says in Jeremiah 32, I will give them one heart and one way. Why? That they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Don't you love this? He says, I'll do it. Earlier we saw we were all indicted by the words from Romans 3 saying there's no fear of God before their eyes. And he says, I'll do it. I'll put the fear of God in you. Not as a means of scaring us or causing us harm. He says, I'm going to do it for your good. Well, what kind of good, you ask? What kind of good does God have in mind? He's, he said, I'm not going to turn away from it, and I'm going to do it for their good. What kind of good? I'm so glad you asked. Let's see what good God promises to his people who fear him. Luke 150, his mercy is for those who fear him. Psalm 111, he provides food for those who fear him. Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Next slide. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. Next one. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you. I love that. How abundant is your goodness. Friend, do you see how good it is to fear the Lord. This fear isn't terror. This is thrilling. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So what does it mean to fear the Lord and to conduct ourselves in fear? It means to live in awestruck reverence and joyful wonder of who God is and to marvel at what he's done for us. It means to not treat him lightly or ignore him or relegate him to the margins of your life, but to live all of life in light of the reality that he is and he is worthy of adoration and obedience and worship. It's letting this fear of him shape everything we do and how we live. Every decision we make, every way we treat each other, every word we speak, every word we type, Every minute of every day, while we are alive, we are to conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exile. That's what Peter's after. That's what he wants. But he does so much more than just say that. He could have just said, here's what you need to do. But he says, I'm going to give you four reasons why. So four reasons why we should be God-fearing people. First reason is what I called paternal judgment. Look back at the beginning of verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So here, Peter sets up his call to live in the fear of God by pointing us to two realities about our relationship with God. First, he reminds us that we call on him as father. What a privilege. 
What a privilege that we can call on the God who made everything and rules over everything. We can call on him and he'll actually listen to us. But not just that we can call on him, we can have the audacity to call him Father. How in the world could that be possible? Well, because earlier in chapter 1, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. And when we were born again, we were born into his family. And he became our father. So Peter now says, okay, if that's true for you, if you've been born again into God's family and you call on him as your father, then part of conducting yourselves in fear means you should treat him as your father. Because with the privilege of having God as our father comes the responsibility to obey him as our father. What he's trying to emphasize is that being God's children doesn't give us license to live however we want, thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter. I don't need to worry about it. God's my father. We're not to live like those privileged kids who will do whatever they want, unafraid to get in trouble because they know it's just a call. They can call their dad and dad will get them out of trouble. God says, that's not how this works. Instead, because we have a healthy fear of him and a desire to do what pleases him, we seek to live as obedient children, just like he said in verse 14. And we do this because we know, since we know our Father, we know that our Father is also a just judge who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. When it says he's impartial, it means that when he judges, no one gets special treatment. He doesn't put his fingers on the scales of justice. He always judges in a way that is right and equitable and fair. God is perfectly just when he judges our lives. And notice what he bases his judgment on. Each one's deeds. Now wait a minute, you say. Wait a minute. I thought the whole message of Christianity is that we are saved by faith, not by works. And I would say, yes, absolutely that's true. We are saved by faith, and we are judged by our works. Why? Because our works are what give evidence of our faith. If we believe, if you have faith, your works will show that. And if you don't believe, your works will show that. That's why James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What the Bible makes clear over and over is that real faith always leads to real living. You don't have to worry, like, what if I have real faith? It just never shows itself in my life. It will or it's not real. And this is why God will judge each man according to his deeds. Because his deeds reveal what he trusted and what he feared. So because God is both our loving father and a just judge, we should conduct ourselves with fear. I got to this point in writing this and I just thought, I wonder how this is landing so far. I wonder how people are hearing this. And I wonder, the question that came to my mind over and over again is, does this view of God square with yours? Does your God require obedience? 
Or is he just the cool dad that lets you do whatever you want? Does your God inspire a healthy and holy fear of him as a just judge? Or do you view his grace as just a get-out-of-jail-free card? That means your deeds don't really matter. What Peter wants us to see is that if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, you ought to conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That word exile brings us to our second reason for fearing God. I called this one patriotism. And I felt funny even typing that. So why would I do that? Why would I call this one patriotism? Well, because patriotism has to do with loving one's country. In fact, literally, the roots of the word can be traced back to having to do with loving a fatherland. So when Peter says we are to conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exile, he reminds us, you are citizens of another country, of a better one, a heavenly one. We have a true fatherland, a land where our father is king. So even though right now you and I find ourselves living in exile in a foreign land, we still belong to our fatherland, and we still belong to our true king. Therefore, we should still fear our king, even when living in another land. We still live as citizens of his kingdom, and we live according to his laws. We seek to be faithful to him and do what pleases our king here So that when the king comes to bring us home to our true country, we'll see him smile and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So we conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile in this world. Then in verses 18 and 19, we see the third reason we are to fear God. That's because we've been purchased. Look at verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter says here that we were ransomed, or your Bible might say redeemed. Those words are often used interchangeably here. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be ransomed or redeemed? Well, usually this term had to do with purchasing someone's freedom from slavery. Oftentimes, this person was in slavery because they had debts that they couldn't pay. So rather than you can't get money from them, well, then we'll just take you into slavery until you can work off your debts. So how it would often work in the pagan culture around Peter's day is that rather than paying the slave owner directly, so rather than going to the slave owner and giving him the money, someone who wanted to ransom someone from slavery would instead go to the temple of one of the gods or goddesses and put the money into the coffers of that temple with the agreement and understanding that the temple would then go pay the slave owner. All this was meant to signify and imply to that person who was ransomed that the one who actually ransomed them from slavery was that god or goddess. And the understanding was that because that god or goddess ransomed them from slavery... They now belong to them. They were now their servant. So Peter's saying, that's what happened to us in the gospel. He's taking this thing around him and he's saying, that's a good picture, but it's not quite right. Let me tell you what it's really about. 
He's saying we've been purchased out of slavery. And notice what it is we were ransomed from. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He's saying there were ways of living that we all inherited from our forefathers. These ways of living were feudal. They were sinful. It means they they were empty. They were worthless ways of living. They they didn't work. They, they, They were hollow. They seemed right to us. That's why they kept getting passed down. They seemed right to us, but they only led to our condemnation. Our feudal ways of living had accumulated a debt for us that none of us could pay. So all of us were forced into slavery. But, Peter says, you were ransomed. What was the price? Some exorbitant dollar amount, however many pounds of coin. He says, no, 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 not silver or gold. Not anything that you might ascribe value to and think, oh, well, that's, surely that's what it costs to get us out. Just as God said in Isaiah 52, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Okay, so if not money, then what? What was the price to purchase our freedom? The price of our ransom was the precious blood of Christ. Friends, our freedom from sin did not come cheaply. Grace is free to us but it was the most expensive purchase ever made. It cost the beloved Son of God his life. It cost his precious blood. Like Peter didn't have to put that word in there, but he says his precious blood. And we need to be clear, this is not precious as in cute and dear, like, oh, that's so precious. No, 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 no. This is precious like a gemstone. Priceless. Rare exceedingly expensive and infinitely valuable. His blood, it says, was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, he was the perfect, flawless sacrifice. This is the kind of lamb that they would have needed when they put the blood over the doorpost in the Passover so that they'd be free from the wrath of God. It's the kind of lamb that would have been needed on the Day of Atonement when the lamb was killed in a place of the people to die for their sins. Jesus, the one through whom and for whom all things were created, was this spotless, sinless Lamb of God who died in our place for our sins so that we can seek shelter under his blood to keep us safe from the wrath of God so that he can bear the punishment for our sins. His blood is what it costs for you and I to be freed from our sins so that now we can sing, now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. Friends, he paid the whole debt we owed. And because of the precious blood of Jesus, we are free And remember what we are freed from. This is important because yes, we were freed and redeemed from the penalty of our sin. But here, that's not what Peter's focusing on. Peter's focusing here on the fact that we were ransomed from the power of sin. We've been rescued from these hollow and pointless and futile ways of living. He says, the way you used to live, you don't got to live that way anymore. You used to be stuck in it unable to free yourself. Like there was no way you could live differently. He says, but not anymore. 
In Titus 2.14, Paul says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from what? From all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Do you hear it again? He's saying, you used to live a way that led you nowhere but judgment. It was futile. Like the harder you tried, the worse off you were. You can't work yourself into God's good favor. And the more you try, the deeper your debt gets. He said, I've rescued you from that. Not only have I rescued you from that, now I've made you zealous to do what you ought to do. His blood set us free, not just from future wrath, but from past futility. The cross doesn't just change what happens to us when we die. It changes how we live right now. Because we've been purchased, friends, we no longer have to sin. And we need to hear that over and over again. Because in the moment of temptation, I know it feels like, yes, I do. You don't know. Like, I can't keep those words from coming out of my mouth. I can't stop from going to that website. I can't stop from responding that way. There's so many impulses that feel like they are in charge. But no, you have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You don't have to repeat the sinful ways passed down to you by your family or your culture. There are, there's narratives that tell you, well, this is a generational sin. Your dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic, so you're going to be an alcoholic. You don't have to. Your mom got divorced and her mom got divorced and her sister got divorced. Divorce is just in your family. You don't have to. Friends, you've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers so that you've been set free to live lives of hope and holiness, set free to delight in God and to love one another, to have real peace and joy. And because we've been ransomed by Jesus, we now belong to him. We've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And because we belong to Jesus, we conduct ourselves with fear. Because we know this blood is precious. And he's ransomed us from our old feudal ways. So now we live in a joyful fear of God. As if that wasn't enough, <clears throat> Peter gives us one last reason to be God-fearing exiles. In verses 20 and 21, Peter wants to show us that your salvation and freedom from slavery to sin wasn't just an afterthought for God. It was planned all along. Look at verse 20. Speaking about Christ, Peter says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So here what Peter does is he walks us briskly through six glorious realities about Christ that help us fear God in wonder and admiration. So these are going to go quick, but number one, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before the universe was created, God planned what he was going to do in sending his son to be our ransom. Think about that. God knew and loved Jesus before anything else existed. And he knew and chose the role his eternally beloved son would play in the part of redemption. The gospel is not God scrambling to figure things out when the world goes awry. He doesn't have this plan for a beautiful world and then we messed it up and he says, now what? His Christ 
His chosen anointed king who would save his people was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Just as God's people were foreknown up in verse 3, so too was our ransom. Second thing he tells us, this Christ was made manifest in these last times. So though he had existed eternally as the son of God, Jesus was not visible to mankind. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The time was the time of the Messiah. And Christ appeared as the image of the invisible God. He was made manifest. We could see him. He revealed God. And he showed us this Christ in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So the next thing we see is why was Christ made manifest? For our sake. You see that? Verse 20 says, for the sake of you. I just want you to stop and feel the weight and wonder of those words. The eternal, all-wise God planned a rescue mission from before the foundation of the world. So just think about a plan before you were born, before this country existed, before people had found this continent, before anything we know was invented, before there were even trees or water or skies, before any of that, the all-wise, eternal God formulated a rescue plan to ransom people, not just people, people who sinned against him. He said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to rescue them from their own sin against me, and it's going to be at the unthinkable cost of his own son's blood. And then this God waited until the time was just right so that when the fullness of time came, he sent his divine son into the world to carry out that rescue plan. And why did he do all that? This eternal plan that spanned millennia? Why would he do that? For our sake. I mean, we feel unbelievably special and important if somebody plans like a surprise birthday party three months out. We think, wow, that's really, that's a lot of care and attention they showed me to spend three months planning this thing to do me good. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to rescue you. How could you ever think God doesn't care when he's been planning and working to free you and change the way you live since before time began? Number four, God raised this Christ from the dead. This same Jesus who shed his precious blood to ransom us didn't stay dead. God raised him up and now and forevermore, Jesus is alive. Number five, not just that, God gave him glory. The resurrected Jesus is now at the Father's right hand where he is reigning over all things as king. He now has the glory he had with the Father from before eternity. And when he returns, he will share that glory with us. And finally, number six. Why did God do all of this? All of these works in Christ. So that through him, we would be believers in God. The reason 
Christ was foreknown from before the foundation of the world, the reason he appeared in human form, the reason he poured out his precious blood, the reason God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, as verse 21 says, is so that your faith and hope are in God. This glorious salvation, friends, was planned and carried out with you and I in mind. God sent his son so that you would believe. God sent his son and Jesus shed his precious blood so that your hope would be in God. All of this is part of our Father's good and perfect plan. So how do we respond to that? We live in awe and wonder at God's goodness to us and his power to save us. In other words, we conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exile. As we saw earlier, friends, Oh, how abundant is his goodness, which he has stored up. There's a storehouse of goodness with your name on it. For who? For those who fear him. So my prayer for you and for me is may this truth put the fear of God into all of us and make us God-fearing exiles. Would you pray with me?